This is an ABC podcast. We know we've got a problem, a major problem. Capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. It's exploitation. Without healthy competition, big players can change and charge whatever they want and treat you however they want. It's not every day that you hear an American president critiquing the system that has made the United States one of the wealthiest countries in the world and its technology sector among the most profitable. But the tone fits a growing mood in the US and elsewhere that the titans of technology need to be brought into line. From the States to Europe to China, regulators appear to be finally catching up with the online world. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. In today's edition of Future Tense, we'll examine the various measures now being employed to bring freewheeling technology companies under tighter government control. We'll start in Washington, where President Biden recently signed an executive order to that effect. There are six new laws currently before American legislators, the end result of a 16-month investigation by the House Judiciary Committee. Business analyst Alfred Ng from The Markup. So these six proposed bills vary in how likely they are to proceed. The stricter they are, the harder they come down on big tech, the more difficult it will be for them to pass. Right now, they have passed their markup sessions in the House Judiciary Committee, which means that it will go under revisions now and then move forward to a House vote. And if that happens successfully, then it'll move on to a Senate vote and then sent to the president for approval. There's a lot of things that can happen in between that time. You know, a lot of these laws might be sent back and forth between the House and the Senate, and it could drag on for a little bit. But the fact that It was built off of this investigation that lasted for more than a year where they had, you know, more than 400 pages talking about all the ways that these big tech companies have been abusing the lack of scrutiny or or using their dominance in the market to buy their competitors or use data that they get as a platform to get an advantage over their competitors. It definitely shows that this Congress, at least, is very serious about this and are trying to get this moved forward. But again, the ones that have the biggest threat to big tech will have a much harder time passing. So, for example, there is a bill called the Ending Platform Monopolies Act, which makes it illegal for a tech platform to own other companies that present a conflict of interest. An example of that would be Google owning YouTube, because anytime you search on Google for a video, for example, most of the time, the top results are YouTube videos, right? Even though there's many other video streaming platforms out there, Google will only show YouTube results there because they own YouTube. So the Ending Platform Monopolies Act would make that illegal. And there's different interpretations of how that would play out. But the big concern is that by making it illegal, this would force tech giants to break apart all the companies that they own. So one interpretation of it would be that this would force Google to have to make YouTube a completely separate company. So this bill actually has the most opposition in Congress currently. It did pass out of the markup committee, which means that it will get revisions and then go on to a vote. But it only passed by one vote, whereas a law that was proposed 
called the Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act is very likely to pass because it doesn't raise that many red flags among Congress and it doesn't have a lot of opposition from tech giants, but it still would make things more difficult for them. So this law would make it a lot more expensive to have these kinds of mergers. There's usually fees associated with mergers, but they haven't been updated in more than a decade and they were capped at $280,000. And, you know, these companies were billion dollar companies, right? So now they're trying to make it so that if you want to acquire another company, depending on how much it's worth, it could cost you up to $2 million to have that happen. And then the funding from that would go to the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, which does antitrust enforcement. Now, in total, there are three bills dealing with mergers and acquisitions. Then there are two others that seek to better regulate the way tech companies harvest and use data. Your data. So the two bills focused on big data are the American Choice and Innovation Online Act, This is a bill that would prevent tech platforms from using data that they obtained by being a platform. An example of that would be Amazon using data that it obtained from third parties and using that basically as their own marketing research because Amazon is not just, you know, the marketplace. They're also competing with people in the marketplace themselves. So let's say a camera bag is selling really well on Amazon. It's the number one seller on Amazon. They're their own company. Amazon has the capabilities to see that. They know what the best sellers are, and then they know that they can just essentially copy that and make their own product. And this would prevent Amazon or any tech platform from using the advantages that they have by seeing all this data and using it for their own product purposes. And then the other bill about big data is the Access Act. And this would basically allow you to switch platforms, right? Like one company can't just say, well, no, this is all our data. You know, you can't take it and go anywhere else you want with it. So think about how hard it is to leave Facebook right now for any other platform, right? You, You know, a lot of your friends are on it, a lot of your family's on it. And, you know, maybe you yourself are willing to leave, but you want to stay on because your family is there and your family doesn't want to leave because they don't want to go through the whole hassle of like setting up the whole profile again, adding all their friends again. That's part of the issues that gives these companies like Facebook and Instagram the power that they have. It's very difficult to leave them because they have this stronghold on the data that you've given them. The Access Act would require major tech platforms to let you transfer your data to other services very easily. And then the other part of that would mean that companies would have to share data with its competitors, right? So Facebook had shut down access to data that would have helped its rivals like Vine grow, but Vine died out because it wasn't able to grow fast enough because Facebook specifically shut down access to that type of information. So they're quite significant changes if they pass, aren't they? They aren't significant if they pass, and I think that's why so many of these tech giants have been out and about trying to do everything they can to make sure that these bills don't pass. I know that Facebook and Apple uh, in particular have sent several lobbyists to Congress and tried talking to lawmakers to tell them, hey, you shouldn't do this because it's going to hurt innovation, it's going to hurt business. There's been a lot of organizations saying that, you know, if these antitrust bills pass, you know, you're going to hurt American tech companies. And then you find out that, you know, these organizations are all funded by these tech giants. So there's definitely a lot of money going into this. But, you know, these companies are also knowing that there's a lot of money they could stand to lose if these bills pass. So we've talked about five of these six bills. The sixth, the last one, is about what's called court shopping. 
Can I get you to explain Mm -hmm. what that term means and also how big tech companies have benefited from that process in the past? So court shopping is when a plaintiff or defendant can choose, you know, what state do we want this court case to play out in? So court shopping can delay cases and they can raise the cost of it. And if you're a state attorney general, you know, you don't have as much money as Google does. And moving a trial away from, you know, the home state that you're in where you're building this case to a state where Google is in, for example, like California, makes it possible that it's more favorable for them. So this law, the State Antitrust Enforcement Venue Act, would make it so that if a state sues Google or any tech giant, that's it. That's where it's going to happen. You can't ask for it to move, can't delay the case by asking for it to move. It's a fact that you have to have the court case there, and it it just streamlines the process a lot more. We've gotten used to the idea that American politics is extremely polarised, but there does seem to be a significant deal of bipartisanship with regard to these six bills. How significant is that? Yeah, I think it's very significant that these bills are all bipartisan. That's not to say that, you know, it doesn't have any opposition, but it is extremely significant that it is bipartisan because otherwise I don't think people would have taken these bills seriously. I think there's a reason why all these tech companies are on the defense about this, and it's because of its bipartisanship and because of the real risk it poses that both Democrats and Republicans are on board with these proposed laws. Business journalist Alfred Ng from The Markup. So, in the United States, it seems there's once again a taste for using antitrust legislation to curb the power of industry giants. But across the Pacific in Beijing, they're nowhere near as subtle. China's dictator Xi Jinping has rolled out a series of restrictions on everything from ride-hailing services to online education providers to social media platforms. The crackdown began last year, when the head of the giant Alibaba group, Jack Ma, publicly criticised Chinese authorities and was swiftly brought into line. Quite clearly, they got scared when Jack Ma gave his famous speech last year, where he basically defied them. He was quite scathing about the capacity of Chinese policymakers, and he quite clearly infuriated them, and that set them off on a track, which they've since been accelerating along. Stephen Bartholomew's is the senior business columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. The China story is more complicated. It's quite interesting because that goes beyond simply trying to regulate the big techs. There's an element of that which is very similar to what's going on in the States, what's going on in Europe, but it goes beyond that into the whole notion of what Chinese society should look like. If you go back further, back in the 70s, when Deng Xiaoping opened China up to the rest of the world, his notion was you let a few people get rich in order to, to raise the living standards for everybody. Now, Xi Jinping's decided more than a few people have got very, very rich to the point where it's threatening social harmony. And so what they're doing, they're going really hard in a way that a totalitarian regime can and we can't. But there are strains of the same debates and arguments occurring all around the world as we try to deal with the Facebooks, Googles, or in the case, Alibaba and Tencent. So a large part of this is political, but it's more than political. What about things like the reforms that have been made to the digital education companies? Again, it's a combination of the two things. One, you had a couple of companies which dominated private education in China. And a lot of people in China are paying enormous amounts of their income 
to educate their children because they want their children to get ahead. But that wasn't going to work if Chinese parents felt they couldn't educate their children. So there's a social dimension to that as well. But the other aspect of it is this notion that people were making money out of providing a basic service. And in a socialist economy, that sort of started to grate. And so they just wiped the industry out. Basically, you, you cannot make a profit out of education anymore in China. These changes right across the board, how much of an impact have they had on the economics of the companies involved? It's wiped trillions of dollars off their market value, if you like. It's made some mega billionaires less wealthy. Jack Ma has probably lost tens of billions from his wealth. You wouldn't notice it, but it's, but it's you know, on paper, it's taken out a lot of Chinese wealth. Associated with their concerns about data, they see data as a national security asset. And so they're doing their utmost to stop data being transferred outside China because they actually see that as a huge national asset, very much linked into their pursuit of artificial intelligence leadership. That's one of their stated objectives is to dominate artificial intelligence, which of course depends on data and they have more data than anybody else. And so they're trying to retain that data. So they're trying to cut off access to the rest of the world to Chinese data. And is that why Chinese authorities penalised the ride-hailing service Didi? Because they had their IPO, their initial public offering in America, didn't they? It's the dominant ride-hailing group in China, which means it's the, the biggest of its kind in the world. And they're paranoid that if the big Chinese companies, for instance, list in the States, that somehow or another the US is going to get access to that data. And so they're doing their utmost to rein in those companies, not necessarily stop them listing offshore, to make, but to make sure there's no capacity for that data to be accessed from offshore. In relation to Didi, by the way, there's also very much a national security interest in Didi because everybody in China uses Didi, including party officials and bureaucrats. And I think that they're paranoid that the, the data Didi holds, if it was accessible elsewhere, would allow people to track everything that happens inside China. So Chinese digital operators have had the ground beneath them well and truly shaken. But what about foreign investors? Despite the enormous size of the Chinese economy, it's heavily reliant on foreign capital. Each time they make one of these pronouncements that impacts the big tech companies that do have foreign investment in them and the share prices fall, the foreign investors flee, and then when everything settles, they come back in mainly because companies like Alibaba and Tencent are unique. They're huge and they have enormous growth potential. But certainly the share prices have been absolutely smashed by what the Chinese government have done. And there's an element of uncertainty now which will deter some investors. Some people just won't go there for fear that they'll wake up the next morning and China will have done something else to damage their investment. It's not just equities. So foreign investors have become very keen on Chinese government bonds and Chinese state-owned enterprise bonds because the returns, interest rates on them, are so much more attractive than the sort of negligible interest rates you can get in the Western world. In America, 10-year bonds yield just over 1%. So those bond markets have become quite seductive for foreign investors. But you can see in those bond markets, because China seems to be going through a real upheaval. They're trying to deleverage an economy which was completely leveraged by their response to the global financial crisis and then more recently to COVID. So there's so much turmoil occurring both on the equity and debt side that the markets have become extremely volatile and you're seeing money flowing in and out quite rapidly depending on whatever the government pronouncement of the day might be. Given that, as I understand it, digital businesses in China account for 40% of China's GDP, Can the Chinese economy actually bear this kind of economic upheaval? 
That's, uh, I suppose, the multi-trillion dollar question, and we won't really know until we have hindsight. If it impacts their growth, and if you look at, say, Ant Group, which is the financial arm of Alibaba, or Tencent, who dominate the fintech space in China in a way that no one dominates fintech elsewhere in the world, they have been turned into what effectively will be banks. They've been told they have to create new holding companies, which will have all sorts of requirements they never had previously, like having to hold capital and to be quite intrusively regulated and to not make the same sort of commercial use of the data they hold that they used to be able to do. You would think that's going to have some limiting impact on their growth. But I think within China, there's a view that social media is not all that valuable and that if they could redirect the resources that have gone into the creation of these big social media companies or the rideshare companies, the big tech companies more broadly, if they can redirect that to their national security and national economic objectives, their priorities, that that would actually be a better use of the resources. Whether that leads to a loss of dynamism and entrepreneurialism, because most of the entrepreneurism in China is in that private sector and, and is in that tech sector, I think is a really interesting question, but it's one that's going to play out over years, decades maybe. Very hard to pass a judgment on today. And the rationales that have been used to justify the various crackdowns, take us through those. What is the official line? There's no single official line because you're talking about a whole number of different strands to what they've done. In relation to the fintechs, there was a real question in their minds about the continued growth of Alibaba and Ant and Tencent and what that might mean for a relatively unsophisticated financial system, which has got a lot of debt in it. I think they're quite concerned that allowing them uncontrolled growth could lead to some sort of financial instability, maybe some sort of financial crisis because they just weren't being regulated. <laughs> and they were doing all sorts of quite innovative things in the consumer space and encouraging consumer debt in, a, in an economy which has got too much debt and which they've been trying to deleverage. So I think that was one strain of it. The data privacy, the anti-monopoly strains, I think they're very similar to the debates we've had in the West. I think those are mainstream issues. How much data can you collect from citizens? What can you do with it? To what extent can you commercialise it without the user's consent? Those sorts of issues. Competition policy. The big tech companies in China, the consumer-facing ones, quite routinely had clauses in their agreements with their customers that they couldn't use third parties who might be competitors. Now, clearly that's anti-competitive and quite relatively recently the Chinese authorities have stopped that and said you cannot do that. So there's a whole bunch of sort of catching up with some of the competition arguments that we've been having for decades in the West, almost overnight. Because all this has happened in the last six, seven months. Right? So it's massive escalation of regulatory intrusion into sectors that weren't regulated at all. But from what you're saying, some form of correction was likely to happen at some stage. Undoubtedly, the 10 cents in the Alibabas of the world, they were big enough to shake the system. So that's why they're being regulated. So in one sense, you know, a key difference between, say, China and the United States is, is simply that the government has a much freer hand in China to do what it wants and to order companies to, to come into line. We talk about these things a lot and for over very lengthy periods. They've just done it. Quite interesting contrast in the way their society works and the way our society and political systems work in the US. An army, an absolute army of lobbyists have been hired by the tech companies, whether it's the, you know, the Facebooks and, and Googles and Amazons or whether it's the crypto guys. They've got hugely well-paid lobbying firms 
out there talking to congressmen all the time to convince them not to go too hard too early and preferably not to go at all. In China, I'm not sure that you'd want to be a lobbyist in China. Stephen Bartholomews, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anthony. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. And our theme today, the global crackdown on the powers of big tech. At least that's the way some people are seeing it. I'm Anthony Fennell. So far, we've heard about developments in the US and in China. But there's also a lot going on in Europe, where EU legislators are currently considering two draft bills. One called the Digital Services Act and the other the Digital Markets Act. Hardly exciting names, perhaps, but potentially significant pieces of legislation, according to senior business writer David Mayer, who's based in Germany. The Digital Services Act is designed to make large online platforms better at handling content moderation decisions. So it gives them a little more responsibility to act on taking down content that is illegal, while also telling them to make their decisions more transparent and giving people a way to appeal those decisions if their content is taken down. Whereas the Digital Markets Act is largely about handling the speed at which large technology companies develop, the speed at which they take over markets. Traditional antitrust legislation, existing laws, are not necessarily very well suited to this because they can take years to produce a result, whereas these companies move at very high speed. And that's what this law is trying to address. The Digital Markets Act is, I think, a very, very significant piece of legislation because it changes the way in which the regulators deal with these large technology companies if they decide that these companies are so big that they pose a real risk to the proper functioning of the market then they can impose obligations on them beforehand they can say you've got this change in policy coming up you've got this thing you're going to do that's coming up well you can't do that because you're in such a strong position already that you can't do that that's a huge change Currently, the situation is that regulators have to wait for a company to do this terrible, terrible thing, whatever it is, and then crack down on them. But this new way of doing things speeds up the process considerably. And what sort of penalties are proposed for future violations? We're talking fines in the order of 10% of global revenue, global annual revenue. So in theory, the fines are absolutely enormous. But I would say that as with Europe's general data protection regulation, this very tough piece of privacy law that came into effect a few years ago, the fines grab headlines. They have large amounts of money, but they're unlikely to stop these companies from doing what they want to do. It's the threat of telling them that they cannot do something. The actual structural changes, the behavioral changes that they are compelled to do by law, compelled to make by law. Those are the really meaty effects of these laws. And where is the legislation at at the moment? At the moment, it's going through the very slow European legislative process. So at the moment, it's being considered by relevant committees of the European Parliament. 
once Parliament has decided what it would like this legislation to look like, it'll go over to 27 EU countries who will come up with their proposal, and then they will all thrash it out in backroom deals, which are known as the trilogues, which unfortunately aren't very transparent. And uh, some pieces of legislation can change quite dramatically at the last minute in these trilogue negotiations. The whole process will probably take about a year and a half, two years. Now, I understand that Germany and France are pushing ahead with their own legislation in similar areas. Do they simply see the EU process as too slow? I think that that is a fair assessment of the situation. But also, I think there's a a certain amount of national pride and a national motivation in these things. Germany has always taken a lead on matters to do with competition and antitrust, and that's what they're trying to do now. They've basically already made this change at the beginning of this year that large companies of the likes of Amazon and Facebook can be seen as so large that they inherently pose a threat. And there is already a new law that says that they can be preemptively banned from doing things that would entrench their power too much. Whereas in France, because of other political imperatives, they're having a big debate about French national values at the moment and about Islamist extremism. And again, they want online technology companies to get started immediately on cracking down on hate speech and being more transparent about the way that they handle these issues. One thing that I would say about this is I think Germany and France are definitely trying to influence what happens at the European level by saying, we've already introduced these laws. We don't want these to change too much with whatever the EU-wide rules turn out to be. So by moving first, they are certainly trying to shape the EU-wide rules before they come into play. And bear in mind that Germany and France, especially since Brexit, are the twin powerhouses of Europe. They are the most powerful countries in the Union, and they do stand a good chance of influencing the final outcome with the laws that they've already introduced. In many ways, Europe led the way, didn't it, with its data protection regulation, the GDPR. Is this building on that? Does the EU see itself as a world leader in this field? Very much so. The European Union has learned over the years, even before the General Data Protection Regulation came into effect a few years ago, its predecessor was also world-leading privacy law. And that was in the sense that companies that wanted to have frictionless data flows between their countries and the EU already had to make sure that their privacy laws were at least in the same ballpark as the EU's laws. So in that way, the European Union exports its laws in effect, firstly by making other countries have similar strength laws if they want to have easy data transfers with the EU. And also because if you're a big tech company, If you're a company that's operating in the EU and the EU forces you to change the way that you're doing things over there, it's a lot easier for you to implement the same changes on a global scale than it is to decide, oh, we're going to treat the EU very differently. And there may be some cases in which companies do that, but for a large technology company, you don't really have that choice. And it's very difficult to say, okay, in Europe, we're going to give people more rights We're going to play by the rules, but we don't have to do that for our other users. We don't have to do that in other countries. That doesn't play very well. So these European laws are very, very effective at effecting changes all around the world. 
David Mayer, a senior writer for the publication Fortune, and he's based in Germany. We also heard today from Alfred Ng of The Markup and Stephen Bartholomews, the senior business columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Next week on Future Tense, the metaverse, Silicon Valley's dream of an immersive digital future. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg is committing billions to making it a reality. So what's it all about? The term metaverse has really just shot right up in terms of Google Trends. People are asking about it all over the place. Metaverse really creates this illusion of it's like the universe, but more than that, it's overlaid on top of it with whatever we can design to enhance this experience of being human. Facebook's record has shown that, you know, its habit is to acquire other companies and shut them down or crush them or absorb them in whatever way they possibly can. So when Zuckerberg talks about the metaverse trying to be interoperable or like everything kind of fits together, it's really hard to believe. It seems like Facebook would want to control this entire space no matter what. The metaverse, that's next week on Future Tense. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer, Karen Sivanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.